Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain here with the No Film School podcast for the week of February 25th, 2020. I'm here with George Edelman. Hello. And we're going to be talking about Kinefinity dropping its prices. We're going to be talking about the coronavirus and how it affects the film industry. We're going to be talking a little bit about the Oscars that just happened. I know we're a week late to the Oscars, but we didn't do a podcast last week. So we're going to talk about it this week. And on top of all that, we've got a tech news story about a light that wants to replace your 1200 watt HMI. We've got all that and an Ask No Film School about working with mature actors. We've got all that this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. Our top story this week is that Kinefinity has dropped their prices by about 30%. So who is Kinefinity, you might ask? So we should be clear and say that we have a regular writer with us, Rafi, who actually rents, like, No Film School's office used to be on the fifth floor and his office was on the sixth floor. Um, So he, like, worked near the old No Film School office. Independent filmmaker, does a lot of cool stuff. He shoots a lot with Kinefinity. He's our Kinefinity expert. He's not actually going to be chiming in on this, but I want to point out that if you guys are really curious about Kinefinity... He's done a couple of huge in-depth reviews that are on the site at nofilmschool.com that you should check out. Kinefinity is a Chinese camera company. They are sort of operating in the mostly similar in terms of specs. They're more like a red digital cinema than they are on Alexa in terms of like the specs they're trying to hit. They're, you know, they're really pushing on things like resolution. They originally had a 4K camera and then a 6K camera. And now they have a camera that is a full uh, full frame camera. So they're really pushing in that sort of direction, but at incredibly independent prices. After this price drop, the 4K camera is like $4,000. You know, uh, the 6K camera is something like seven grand. So it's a much more affordable package compared to something like a RED. But the trade-off you're, you've always been dealing with with someone like Kinefinity is that it's a Chinese company, and that's not inherently good or bad, but it does mean that their infrastructure has not been built out yet internationally enough, right? Like, there's an area office in LA, there's a red office in LA, there's an area office in New York, there's a red office in New York, there's offices and infrastructure, and you have an issue, you can go to them. Kinefinity is working on that infrastructure, Um but, you know, the, one of the big things people have always talked about with Kinfinity is when there is an issue, you're sometimes shipping things back and forth internationally. It's not always something that you're going to be able to fix locally. However, the images we've seen out of Kinfinity have been really beautiful. Uh, Rafi has really uh, posted a whole lot of beautiful stuff in his reviews. And what's really particularly interesting is, you know, this is an independent filmmaking platform. And what we're really dedicated about is like, as many people as possible having access to tell stories. And Kinefinity makes these very affordable cameras. And there's more and more of them out in the world. Like you run into more of them more often. And so if you want something that gives you, you know, a PL mounts, you can use interchangeable actual cinema lenses. If you want something that's giving you those higher resolutions, if you want it, your hands on any of those things, the Kinefinity is actually sort of an interesting option. Now, Anytime a company cuts their prices that drastically, there's always a couple of things that people think. The first thing people think, and thank you, uh, Darren, who covered this for the blog, for talking about it is, does this mean a new product is coming? Um, I'm curious if a new product is coming. The Mav OLF, their big sort of top of the line platform has been out for about two years. So here's the thing. There's a couple of different models for pricing equipment. There's what we call the consumer model. 
And then there's what we call the professional model. The consumer model for pricing equipment is something like a, uh, you know, a 100% markup. If it costs me $100 to make it, I sell it for $200. And my goal is that I'm going to sell so many of them I make money. This is like the sunglasses pricing model. Um, now, in that markup, there's usually not a lot of room for things like infrastructure. There's usually not a lot of room for things like support and techs and things like that. Red initially started with this pricing model. The original Red One, way back in 2006, 2007, I think was priced on sort of that markup. And then a couple of years in, they realized how much extra work was required to support filmmakers because filmmakers are high maintenance clients. Uh, if, you, if you've never met a film, like if you're a filmmaker, you're aware we're high maintenance. We have needs, we have desires. We're like, why isn't it doing this thing or why isn't this thing working or whatever? Also, you could say that filmmakers push the products to the tet to the limits. Yes, that's a gentler way of saying. It. I'm <laughs> I'm going to say high maintenance, but yeah, that's a nice way to say it. So they they came out with their epic which was priced I felt like professionally. I felt like it was a good sign that they'd priced it professionally. My guess is that the epic cost as much to make as the red one, but they did a 500% markup instead of a 100% markup. And so all of a sudden something that cost, you know, cost $40,000 to the consumer probably still only cost about eight grand to make or whatever, but you need all that markup in order to have a tech support person they can call in order to have that office in LA or New York. My guess is what we're seeing out of Kinefinity is they hit a fork in the road and this is pure speculation, but I'm just going to speculate out my wazoo. They hit the fork in the road that many companies come to where your pro your sources lower cost right? Like you're a camera manufacturer, you're buying circuit boards from people, you're buying sensors from people, you're buying aluminum from people. Aluminum prices don't fluctuate that much, but like silicon prices are always getting cheaper. So all of a sudden your camera is cheaper to make than it was two years ago because your parts are cheaper to make than it was two years ago. Most camera companies keep their price the same, right? Uh, you're not getting mm. discounts on Alexa, Red's price is still the same. And that's where the companies really make their money so that they can have all that support infrastructure you're looking for. This goes back to the whole Red versus Genetech debacle, or not debacle, fascinating kerfuffle. Kerfuffle is better from <laughs> last summer where Genetech was all pissed at Red for charging such a markup on their Red mags. So this is Kinefinity saying, all right, so we're a consumer company. We're going to lower our prices when our raw material is lower. That's a-okay with me. It's fine. The trade-off with that is if you make the decision, here's, here's where that leaves me as a filmmaker. I'm not a freelance DP at the moment. If I were a freelance DP that was regularly like, I'm shooting four times a month, I'm booking jobs that are for other clients, I'm doing a, Kinefinity is probably not my choice. Because if I'm shooting every single weekend a different job for a different client and something goes wrong with my Kinefinity, I don't have an office in town I can go bitch to. If I buy a Red, if I buy an Alexa, if I buy something like that, there are people in the city I'm in that I can go mm. complain to. However, if I was an independent filmmaker, which I am, and I was thinking, you know, I'm going to go make a project and it's going to be a personal passion project and I want the images to be beautiful, but I also want to own the camera because I want to shoot for like six months of weekends. The Kinefinity, you know, that what's that following the first Chris Nolan movie that he shot on weekends for like ever? Um, yeah. If that's your model, the Kinefinity could actually be a pretty attractive package. So you think it's, you're saying it makes sense as an investment in like in the filmmaker who's kind of like one mule, what do you call it again? Uh, one Instead mule team. One, one mule the team. One mule, the one mule team filmmaker who's not using it as like a rental out to other. Yeah. Productions who's just like, I have a special project I'm working on and I want awesome 
data to be recorded yeah. on my device and I want to own it and, you know, work on it when I can. Yeah. And you want to own it because you're going to shoot every weekend for the next two years. So renting every weekend over two years would add up quite a lot. So I think it's really exciting for that. Let's talk about the price point real quick because we haven't mentioned it. In Darren's post, which is on the site now and says Kinfinity, it's just the headline is Kinfinity significantly drops its camera prices. Um, he reached out and spoke to them and he says, they say it has to do with improving the supply chain and production process, which is vague, um, but sounds kind of like what you're talking about. Yeah. It looks like the handheld, I have the prices here, yes. is $14.99. Well, that's the accessory the kit. $2,099. So you need to buy a body and an accessory kit. So the body- right. The Mavo LF body used to be twelve grand and is now eight grand, which is a huge right. difference. The Mavo LF is the big premier, like large format sensor. The Mavo six yes. K went from eight grand to five grand. The Terra four K went to, from four grand to thirty five hundred. With any of them, you need to buy sort of an accessory kit. The right, that's what I was. Yeah. that's what I was quoting. Yeah, the cheapest accessory kits, the handheld for fifteen hundred bucks. You can get the core for three grand or production for five grand, but you can get the production for five grand, which comes with V-mount batteries and monitors and shoulder pad and all that. And so you can get that and a Terra 4K for 8,500 bucks and have a 4K ProRes or RAW shooting camera that is all set up and ready to go in a cinematic form factor that- Pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of- Amazing. Referring back to the Rafi Rivero post that he did uh, back in June, he had some access, of course, to the Mavo LF, which is their 8K, right? Yes, the Mavic L uh, Mavo LF, yeah. Yeah, so he wrote up a story about that for us and included some video. Um, if you're interested in seeing that, as long as we're talking about the price drops in the product, and that one's called the world's first Kinfinity Mavo LF film tests cameras capabilities. Um, so definitely check that out if you're interested. The big question is um, fraction of the cost, but is there a drop off in the quality? Yeah. And I, I, most reports seem to be that the images are really beautiful and quite pleasing and that there's really nice roll off. And there's, you know, if you have the time, you can really color grade them beautifully. So it's sort of exciting. The one thing that we haven't talked about, and we're going to use this to transition to our next topic, is whether or not the biggest news story dominating all of your social media and local TV newscasts affects this at all. And that is, is this related to the coronavirus or COVID-19? Um, there have been some, I've seen some chatter on my Facebook and the, the tweeters about uh, that, about this being related to coronavirus. I don't know if anybody in our comments is talking about it. It is complicated to know how um, virus outbreaks relate to pricing on international products. Well, there is an expectation, and this is related to filmmakers in this manner, but sort of related to everyone. I have heard expectations, prognostications that this that the coronavirus will have a massive effect on the economy. Yeah, I, I definitely listened to a podcast that was like it could knock half a point off of China's D GDP and 0.1 points off our GDP, which is like actually quite huge. I think it is likely too soon to say kin affinity is related to coronavirus. My suspicion is that we're going to see the impacts from coronavirus in pricing on the, in the summer and fall. And the impacts you're going to see 
you know, uh, Apple's actually already said that they expect to lose uh, to slow down this year because they won't be able to get enough cameras because of their supply chain. And what's interesting to me, I actually think I don't think this is coronavirus related. And the reason why is usually what would make sense is if you lower price, you expect to increase volume, right? In a, in a, in a rationally functioning market, I lower my prices, more people buy my thing. So if I'm Kinefinity and my factory is not reopened because there's, the workers are afraid to go out or because we're on lockdown, depending on where it is. I mean, if they're in Shenzhen, uh, which is near Hong Kong, it's it's not near uh, Wuhan. But like there's slowdowns all across China um, dealing with the uh, repercussions of the virus. If I'm worried about slowdowns in my manufacturing especially in my supply chain, if like I have a factory near Wuhan that's not making a part I need, I'm not going to lower my prices to try and sell more because I physically won't have more to sell. So I don't know that this is necessarily, I don't see how this would be related. If the price had gone up, I could see how it was related to coronavirus because supply chains are slowed down. And so, um, so people are raising prices in order to uh, deal with that. But I don't necessarily think they are related. What is related is James Bond. Yeah, so this is a, there's an obvious direct connection here. Uh, the uh, appropriately or inappropriately titled No Time to Die, James Bond movie, which is coming out soon, um, is not going to do its major release and premiere plan for China because of the coronavirus. So... That has a pretty big impact on the overall box office outlook for a movie like this because China's the second biggest market um, box office-wise. Um, you know, the quote in a story up on the New York Post that I found, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of stories everywhere about this, um, is that when you talk about making a one billion, a filmmaking one billion worldwide, you can't do it without a big chunk of that coming from China. Um, it's a, it's a significant, this, there's a trickle down effect here. Like this is a major movie, like one of the biggest movies of the year and one of the biggest franchises in the business, but this will affect movies that expect to make money in China. And there's, that's a far reach into the industry and how long this lasts and how much this affects. Um, so 70,000 cinemas across China are currently closed. So these are the kinds of, there will be a trickle down in terms of the calculation on how much you can earn off a movie. And this will affect the movies that go direct overseas, the movies that plan to make a big chunk of their income that way, um, not just the biggest fish out there, right? So it's a pretty, this could be the beginning of, of a way that this is going to affect filmmakers on a larger scale in terms of what kind of budgets they can get or in terms of what kind of releases are available to them. It's, um, it's also interesting because it is changing entertainment. Apparently, there's been a huge explosion. Everyone is trapped at home in all of these cities that are under lockdown. And there's been a big explosion in live streaming concerts, which is something that I've never really enjoyed before. I don't. Oh, interesting. But I've been reading a lot about like their concerts are still happening, but no one can go. So they're live streaming the concert and live streaming concert numbers are through the roof. For people wanting to feel like they're having a communal experience, but not being able to go outside. 
So there- I wonder if it'll open the door to people just wanting to do that more in general once they've gotten a taste of it. Well, I mean, that is one of those things you worry about where you're like, okay, so we're used to X. And now that we're used to right. X, when we're able to go back out again, do we want to? Or are right. we just I was going to say, you know, the other, the flip side of saying, how does it affect a theatrical market and how cinemas are closed and, and theaters are closed in China is a lot more people are, you know, taking in their content via streaming platforms from home. And doesn't this just kind of encourage that? And, and for filmmakers as well, that continues to be such an obvious platform and such a successful one. And maybe it's just another driving another stake into th- the theatrical model. I mean, this obviously, you know, coronavirus, one would hope is not going to last <laughs> for too long, but this kind of thing may set a new normal, right? Just like, yeah, well, you know what? That time when we had to watch everything from home was actually maybe a little bit easier and better and we spent less money. And yeah, I don't need to go to the theaters anymore as much, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that we... That's the fear, at least. I think that is... If you value the theatrical. Yeah. If you value the theatrical experience, I think that is definitely a fear and an impact of what is going on. So yeah, it does affect filmmakers. Up next, we are going to talk a little bit about the 2020 Academy Awards. Yeah, so Oscars 2020, it happened a couple weeks ago, um, but we're just, you know, recapping a couple of of key points from it. And we want to talk about maybe how the results affected the community and what waves they may have in it. I think the obvious thing to talk about is, um, you know, on this site, we wrote a lot about Parasite. And Bong's filmmaking, his career, we have posts about his 25 favorite movies. We had a post where we interviewed his editor, which is a great story. If you haven't read it, the editor talks about how they planned the movie and how they worked together to conceive of it um, and how he shoots in general. Um, This is the kind of filmmaker and film that doesn't often win this many awards. So he tied. This is an interesting little piece of trivia. He tied Walt Disney from 1953, I believe, with four Oscars for one individual. They are the only two people in that category. And he just seems like a very unlikely candidate because of the kinds of movies he makes and the kind of filmmaker he is to match. And it's a foreign language movie, which is also, you know, amazing. Um, He also even called out, I think when he won... Did he win at the Golden Globes and he made a comment like the Academy Awards are a regional awards show or something in this just sort of saying they don't really acknowledge international contributions the same way. But they did this year. And it's 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 a big development because, look, I'm not a guy who puts a lot of stock in Oscars in general, and I don't think most filmmakers should. Um, It's a you know, it's an internal awards thing that that doesn't recognize quality because quality is totally subjective and it's just you know look at the list of best oscar winners over history there's a lot of movies that aren't that great but in my opinion but parasite is the kind of movie that a lot of people in our filmmaking community were really happy to see recognized this way for good reason because it operates a little bit outside of the norms. And 1917 is a great movie, an amazing achievement, and we have a lot of great stories up about that too. It's more of a traditional winner, 
Parasite is just not a traditional winner. And so it's cool to see that the Academy, which look, like it or not, it's going to have a big effect on the way the rest of the business works and the projects people seek out. Um, And it's pretty exciting, I think, for everyone in the community to see a movie like this and a filmmaker like him rise to the top of this major event. Um, And I think it would be a shame if we didn't highlight that on our podcast at some point. We have also a really cool super post, in case you're interested, um, called Everything You Want to Know About the 2020 Academy Award Nominees. And what we did was we just went through and we did a roundup of each of the big nominated films and and included links to all the stories we've written about them. Um, The interviews we've done, the coverage we've done about those filmmakers and the process on those movies. So if you're interested in reading up on any of the movies that were big this year, that post is a great way for you to find access to things like that interview with an editor or our interview with Roger Deakins or any of the number of things that talking about Jojo Rabbit, Ford versus Ferrari, tons of content on the Irishman. Because look, I mean, everything that nominated was obviously a special movie out of this year. So my big thought is this, which is that for a long time, America viewed itself as being the dominant voice on the world stage. And in the movie industry, I think it was very true that like, you know, uh, uh, there's that ridiculous thing about the fact that we have a sport called baseball that no one else really plays. And we call the championships the World Series. But in a weird way, the Academy Awards has always presented themselves as being the World Series of movies, that this is the premiere. And what's interesting to me is that as we, as society continues to evolve, as budgets grow internationally, as like all of this stuff, I think the Academy has the opportunity to turn into the World Series of movies to really like, I find this really exciting as a possibility of like, this isn't just because every once in a while, like people, like people will mention that it's not even in English, which totally relevant but for me not only is it not in english it's entirely it, it, it's a south korean movie financed in south korea like it is a it is entirely a product of another industry and the academy awards has always been traditionally a very industry oriented award that it was very hard for them to like nominate independently produced projects for a while because like it was an industry trade show in a lot of ways and so the fact that not only you know it's not like it's an american co-production in south korea and it's like, no, this is just a South Korean movie, but it's great. So it gets the Academy Award for Best Picture because it was so good. And like, I love that vision for the Academy Awards where the possibility becomes that it is really a truly global award, which is something that I think it would have called itself in the 70s while only nominating movies made by the big studios down the street. But like now has the opportunity to sort of become. And in a way, I think that could continue to make it incredibly relevant into the future. I saw Parasite in black and white uh, that, you know, one thing, I don't know if we've run an article about this, but we should. Um, so Bong had always wanted to release a movie in black and white. And so he entirely regraded the movie in black and white. And it is in theaters right now. So if you go look it up, you can choose between a black and white or a color screening. The The thing I love about this is, A, that he regraded awesome. the whole thing. I'm, I didn't know that. And I'm definitely going to try and go see uh, that if I can get out of my house. It's beautiful. You enter another world. Like when you remove color from the equation, like it makes it this more alien dreamscape. Also, our night vision is black and white. It doesn't quite look like a black and white movie, but our night vision just has... Uh, only has luminance. It doesn't has cro- doesn't record chrominance. So like, it's not a completely unnatural thing to be human and see without color. And in some ways, it 
you know, my dreams obviously have color in them, but like it does give me sort of a dream space feeling out of black and white that I really immerse into. And I love that he took the time to regrade it. We also saw George Miller do that a few years ago with Mad Max Fury Road, but like taking the time to individually regrade the entire movie so that it looks correctly in black and white, not just like bringing it into um, resolve and turning the saturation to zero, but like actually doing a grade. <laughs> um, it really is quite yeah, beautiful. Cool. And, you know, if you haven't seen Parasite, I'm not ruining anything to say water plays a big role in the movie. Um, it's probably, I mean, so if you've ever seen like Tarkovsky Solaris, water is a big theme with Tarkovsky and the water themes in Solaris is great. The vertical raves, the sun, a great Vietnamese movie also does a lot of beautiful things with water. This film really uses water in, in many evocative, really shimmering and beautiful ways. And uh, he, he Bong has actually talked a lot about the challenge of rendering that water accurately in black and white. I felt like they did this sort of phenomenal job of connecting me with this, like this invasion of natural water in a urban space that I think is um, absolutely phenomenal and uh, really like added another layer of resonance to the movie. I mean, I'll say this, like, you know, I am one of those people that like never expect the best movie to win because I've just accepted that the Academy's taste is different than mine. But in the last few years, the Academy, I don't know if it's because they let in a lot of younger people or more diverse people, but like, you know, Moonlight was a great movie and it won. Parasite, great movie, it won. I would just add that I really think you can't, we can't stress enough how cool it is that this is a foreign language movie because I just, I was just thinking about this as you were speaking and pulled it up. Akira Kurosawa won only one Academy Award in his career, and it was a Best Foreign Language Film for Dursu Uzala in 1976, which is crazy to me because it's just a reminder of how regional that the Academy Awards has always been because, I mean, I know Kurosawa's movies are some of the most important and impressive movies ever made, and his career covers such a range of kinds of movies. He's so good. And his movies in the 40s and 50s and 60s are just incredible. And it's crazy to me. I mean, he's like, uh, I mean, I know Hitchcock also only ever won like a best, you know, lifetime achievement. And I, it's always just a reminder that the Academy Awards are not a measure of quality. That being said, I think it's really cool to see a movie made, like you said, the entire infrastructure in another country awarded by the Oscars because awarded with Oscars because that's just not been it, it, the history of the Academy Awards does not reflect the importance of international cinema and the voices and the styles and the techniques that have come from other countries and other perspectives are in are just beyond they're just too important and so that's one of the ways in which the Academy Awards is just does not reflect the history of movies and the history of great movies and great movie making. So I think it's a huge, awesome step in a, in a good direction because look, I think there's another thing, which is what's actually the best is a totally like, we'll never, there's no answer to that. I agree with you. It's very rare that I see winners that I think like, Oh, that was the best in my opinion as well. And I did accept at a certain point in my life that it was just never going to be the same as what I viewed as the best. But at the very least, I think it's great to see variety and expansion and what what best is defined as. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. The idea that it's a bigger tent of 
Yeah. You know, that it's not always that it's not always the same thing, you know, because half the people probably watching. You got to make a certain kind of movie to be qualified. The whole idea of Oscar Oscar movie. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and that joke like that, that's so, so well defined that it's like, yeah, we don't want to see. I like going to movies and being surprised. But I also like seeing the definition of greatness expanded. Like you said, the bigger tent. This movie and its success is a good um, measure that you should not. You, someone would have said five years ago, like a foreign language movie is not going to win Best Picture, right? Oh, my well, God. Yeah. Now it has. All right. Our tech news this week is weird. And it's weird because usually tech news, I've heard of the company. And I will admit there are companies that I should have heard of and I haven't every once in a while. Like I heard of every once in a while, someone will be like, you haven't heard of X. They've been around forever. I, I don't know everything as much as I would like to. But this one out of left field. And I, I think it's OK. I haven't heard of them because they don't have any other products on their website except this one product. The company is called Maxima um, or Maxima 7, Maxima7.com. And they have announced an LED light that puts out 89,000 lumens at 5,600 Kelvin daylight uh, that pulls about 700 watts. And they're saying they get, you know, 95 CRI, 97 TLCI. CRI and TLCI are measurements of color accuracy. If you've ever had that phenomenon where you're like eating a fruit and you walk under a weird light and the fruit looks disgusting, that's a poor, that's a low quality light that doesn't reproduce color accuracy. You want high CRI. Now, CRI and TLCI aren't perfect. You can, there are lights that like, measure over 97 TLCI and they're still not flattering. So it's not, they're not be all end all measurements, but the, you definitely need to be above that to be in range of being usable for movie lights. It's got a Fresnel on the front, which is that ridged lens that you, that we got from lighthouses. So, you know, you can flood and spot it from 15 degrees to 60 degrees and it puts out up to 40, 470,000 lux when all the way spotted in and 89,000 um, lumens. So we're talking about a powerful light. The The comparison, they have a whole bunch of sort of comparison videos on their website comparing it to the 1200-watt HMI. And it's important to remember, the 1200-watt HMI is the benchmark that we're all hoping for out of LEDs. The 1200-watt HMI is like the workhorse of cinema. Any any show I'm on, there's a bunch of them on the truck. If we're on a big show with a Jenny, there's a bunch of them on the truck, but I also have a bunch of big units. But if I'm on a little indie and we're just wall-plugging stuff, the 1200-watt HMI is like, it is such a bedrock unit. They're so common. It is the thing that we're hoping for an LED to replace. We actually haven't quite gotten there yet from any of our known manufacturers. So there's a few competitors in this space that like we're already super aware of. There's Aperture who had the 300D and then they just came out with a unit called the 600D, which we I've, I've saw one in a demo, but I haven't gotten a chance to shoot with yet. But, you know, the 600D is 600 watts. This is 700 watts, not quite as powerful, but at least Aperture is a known company. Uh, and then Hive, another known company, full disclosure, I've known John Miller, the founder, for like 15 years. Uh, they have a 575 that they were showing off at Cinegear last year that is of of their Wasp line. And that 575 is super powerful. Now, the Hive is going to be, uh, I believe their 575 is also RGB. The 200 is RGB as well. Um, it's actually they have five color LEDs to give you a, a much better color reproduction. So when you're looking at those units, known companies... 
known manufacturing standards, known quality, known price points. You know, that 575 from Hive, which is RGB, will be about four grand. I think we're looking at two grand on the 600D from Aperture. Um, and that's just going to be daylight balanced only. My guess is that this is going to be 2,500 to three grand. We don't know the price yet, but the bigger worry is we don't know anything about the company. The images look beautiful. The images look great. It looks like a really well-manufactured, robustly built unit. Um, it says it's 100% manufactured in Italy. And while some bike mechanics I know might joke about that Italian manufacturing, there is a strong (laughs) Italian manufacturing history. Um, so, you know, beautiful units that we've all worked with have been manufactured in Italy and also Fiat's. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just a weird unknown. I love the spec sheet. The spec sheet feels great. And I remember living through the red one coming out where the spec sheet felt great. And then the camera came out and it was mostly pretty great. So I think I'm excited for the possibility that this might be a $3,000 HMI replacement that really kicks out 700 Watts of beautiful light. And I could plug two of them in a wall outlet and away we go on shooting a movie. That will be really exciting. What's interesting to me is that it's not from, it's not from Aerie, not from Hive, not from Aperture, not from like, you know, I, I would have expected Aperture to hit 700 or Hive to hit 700 first. I wonder if it's, it could be that they were just being more conservative. It could be that they, especially because Hive wants RGB, it could be that they were focused more in that arena. Or it could be any number of things. But it is interesting to me that, that the 700 barrier, the sort of like really saying we're equivalent to a 1200 watt HMI um, is going to come out of Maxima. Now, obviously, there are bigger HMI, uh, LED units than that. There's a 20K equivalent LED from Mole. But th- that's sort of a different price point. That's sort of a different universe. That's sort of targeting a different space that the way this is launching feels like it's targeting us. And, um, in a way that like, as much as I would love to buy a 20 K Mola beam led, I'm not going to anytime soon. Um, here are the things that make me nervous. There's no about page that tells me about like the founders and their history in film and what they built in the past and stuff like that. That makes me a little nervous to be honest. Like I, you know, even if it was just, I've been a gaffer for 15 years and here's the units I want. Like there's this thing that sometimes happens. I know nothing about this. I am spitballing, but there's this something that sometimes happens where people like shoot one movie and then they decide off that one movie to go build something to solve a problem of that one movie. And that thing is not actually very useful in a wide variety of situations. I'm thinking hmm. of a specific lighting yeah. company. I will remain unnamed. Um, <laughs> what I'm really looking for here is something where it's like, we work on lots of things. We talk to lots of DPs. We're on a whole bunch of stuff. And that gives us, um, it's like, I would like some more history of how it came to be. Right. I, I want, I want more of its backstory. Now it's an Italian company. Maybe the Italian version of their website has more information, um, that I'm just not seeing in the American version. Or it could be that everybody in the film industry already knows these guys but me, and I just happened to have never come across them, and so I don't really know. Um, But I'm just – that's the thing that's like I'm sort of – I'm just trying to figure out. I'm like, okay, so completely new entity on the on the horizon. Less worrying with lights than it is with cameras because lights tend to be less finicky. Like I've never – have I ever sent my lights back to the factory for issues? So like – a completely new entrant who comes in with an insane price point and knocks everybody else out is exciting. 
I'm just going to hold right. my judgment until I've shot with one, I guess. Or until, I mean, I guess this will add to the list of people I can't wait to see when I get to NAB. All right, and then last up this week, we've got an Ask No Film School that I really love. It made me smile. Yeah, this is this is exciting. So, <laughs> Andrew Bourne, who, first off, before anything else, can I just give a shout out to Andrew Bourne? He's on the forums. He has his full name as his name. He has a photo of himself. He's like really doing it right. Andrew Bourne asks, advice for directing older adult actors if you are a student in college or high school? This is a great question. I love this question. I have many thoughts on this question. The first thing I'm going to drop on you is something that um, was dropped on me when I was an early filmmaker and I've always really appreciated, which is actors want to act. And the meaning of that advice is I remember so much when I was like in film school or even before film school and I'd like want to do something and, you know, like a friend would be like, oh, well, I'm looking for X, but I'm really nervous about like trying to, you know, find people who want to do it or whatever. And like, you know, just you put up a casting notice and if people come in, it's because they want to act. People who have the urge to act are desperate for any opportunity to explore their art, to grow as people. Obviously, does that mean you're going to get Ryan Gosling to be in your short film? No, but it does mean that like there are plenty of people out there who are excited about an opportunity to be in things. And even though you might be younger than they are, they're still going to be excited to be part of your voice and part of your journey. And I had a really great experience when I was 19 casting a, an older Broadway actor in a short I was doing. And we had sort of an amazing time working together and I learned from him and, and I think he learned a little from me and we just had this great experience because I had that in my mind of like, this is just an opportunity for him to perform. This isn't like, I'm not asking, I'm asking a favor to be in my low, no budget short film, but I'm not asking a you know, I'm I'm also offering this person an opportunity to uh, expand and explore the craft they love. And that was mm. something that was really helpful for me the first few times I worked with people who were sort of dramatically older than me when I was like 18 or 19 and I'd work with someone who's 60, you know, because it can be a little intimidating depending upon how you feel about, uh, you know, authority and whatnot and the ability to be like, oh, I'm working with you and you clearly like we are crafting this thing together that you love to do made it much easier. Yeah, that's great advice. And it actually comes from a, a different angle than I do because maybe just because of the kind of person I was, but respect wasn't my default. <laughs> um, and I always felt like, why wouldn't people want to be in this short? Like I'm giving that, like, you know, I, I think my arrogance was what I led with when I was younger. Like, you know, holding auditions and Charles, I assume like, cause we both have a history with USC grad school. Was there at, during your time, like a big binder with headshots? Oh, like there was the like binder. a kind of a resource. Uh, yeah. I'm sure now it's not an actual binder, but back in our day, there was a binder with headshots and actors who were like regularly used. And like, there were ways of, uh, look, I guess the way I would uh, to try and be succinct here. There are going to be, especially if you're in Los Angeles or New York, there are going to be a lot of people interested in just what Charles says. They want to flex those muscles. They want to get in that sandbox. They want opportunities to act. They even want opportunities to audition. And there aren't going to be super discriminate a lot about you or your project. But don't let, don't think that that makes you all that special either. Because I think it's important to remember that these people are kind of doing you a favor and you should treat them extremely well, respect the time that they're willing to give you. You are not going to be the Quentin Tarantino 
who turns in all likelihood who turns them into a like super duper star. <laughs> like this is a this is this is practice for you. This is practice for them. And I think that that's a I would say that's a really good way to approach it. And not don't ask too much, and be reasonable um, with you know providing the best experience possible, working conditions wise. Because you know, when I think back to a lot of the like I you know when I was nineteen and twenty. I was willing to go to great lengths to do my little projects or my friends' projects. And I think sometimes you'd cast somebody who was a little bit senior to you or a lot senior to you who really shouldn't be asked to go to those kinds of lengths. They've, they've put in more time and, and they're older and they have other things going on in their lives, one assumes. And I think it's good to keep that stuff in mind, um, just as much as it is good to keep in mind that you don't need to be super intimidated either. Because yeah, this is a this is a there's a symbiotic relationship here. But I always think it's important with actors of any age to try not to exploit their need to get in front of the camera and to get reps. Just like you wouldn't want anyone to exploit your need to do the same as a filmmaker. <clears throat> just like the joke often is paying people and exposure and connections and opportunities is uh, it's not real currency. So uh, be respectful and aware of all of that and try to create, if you're not, if people are doing it like SAG ULB or if they're just doing it for whatever, just to do it and you're a student, try to make the experience pleasant and respect their time and their contribution. I think that would be my big advice. That, that is also great advice. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow up with two more things, which is one, out prep them. So one thing that happens with uh, mo most actors as they age evolve some sort of process that they do. And you, uh, if you are younger than them or if you are feeling some sort of power imbalance with them, I can only tell you that like the more prep you do, the, the, the healthier the working relationship is going to be. Now, that can take the form of rehearsals. I love rehearsals. I'm a big fan of rehearsals. But even if you can't schedule rehearsals um, because of availability issues, like coming to set with your shots thoroughly prepared and with a really firm, deep understanding of like the script and the beats of the script and when the beat changes are and what the motivations are of the character and the character's backstory so that you can have sort of sophisticated conversations about the performance, I think will help you earn respect of more sophisticated actors who might not, you know, one cliche of younger directors is that they are a little camera obsessed and are not as good at the other aspects of it. That is a cliche I've heard actors talk about with younger directors. Also remember, it, you're the one whose job it is to create the entire vision. And I do remember one time where I was really young and I was working with a performer and there was a, um, we were gonna destroy this prop. And in retrospect, they clearly just wanted to keep the prop after we wrapped because it was like a low budget thing. And so they were really arguing for all these ways where the scene wouldn't end up destroying the prop because, you know, of whatever reason. <laughs> and eventually I was like, you're older, you know, I. My thought at the time wasn't, you're older than me, but my thought was definitely a little bit like, filmmaking involves compromise and I'm gonna listen to you hear it out and whatever. And um, so we did it where the prop didn't get destroyed and it's not as good and we should have done it the way I wanted to do it. And I'm the guy who's, the director's job is to know everything about the movie and keep everything in mind and, and to be polishing every moment 
to help the rest of the movie as much as possible, to all add up together. And in that moment, I knew the rest of it would be stronger if that prop was destroyed. But the actor, I think, wanted the prop and kept the prop at the end of shooting. And so that became a like and, you know, it's your like you don't have to be a dick about it. But like actors also respect if you have a coherent vision. And if you're like, no, 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 the beat is this. This is the beat. This is what I need to tell the rest of the story. If you hold that overall vision in your mind, respectfully, people will tend to respect that you have a coherent vision for the project and you are implementing it. Um, and I think that that is actually usually a good thing. That's that's one of the, there's a few, there's a couple moments in my early career I regret, and that is one of them. I think that, you know, there's, I'm reminded of so many crazy situations and incidents in my early career. I mean, you know, when I started making things, it was like the sort of the dawn of things like Craigslist and using weird methods for casting people, different ways, finding strange people, making little projects and shorts on video, like in the early, it was kind of like, there was a, it was a bit of a wild west for a little while. And I think that I had a lot of really weird experiences. And one thing I would say when you're at the, at the early stages in the beginning um, and working with other people who just want to get reps, like I said, you're going to have this power struggle with talent on screen because in a lot of situations, nobody's going to be super established. So there isn't going to be a pre-existing like meeting of like, okay, we're both at this level here and we're working together, et cetera. There's also part of the power struggle is over, they have to trust you because you have the power ultimately as the filmmaker to put them, to make them look a certain way. You get to choose the takes and you get to choose the scenes and they're exposing their vulnerability in their performance. So actors are going to respond to that a variety of different ways. They're going to push you often. Like your prop story reminds me of an older actor once when I was very young, we had in a project who just refused to wear this hat that we thought the character needed to wear. And it's just because he didn't think he looked cool oh, enough or yeah, something. Classic. And it was just like, we had a vision and we felt strongly, but he was like, I'm not letting you do this to me. Like, this is me. And it, it was just like, there were a lot of things. He would often rewrite our script right before we would start shooting. And then the joke that we started to develop on the on the other side of the camera was like, okay, we'll do the take you want. And then secretly like, just don't roll on this one. <laughs> but it was like, because the power is like, we think we know what's best for you in this movie. You think we don't. Like you don't trust that we actually know what's best. You think you have to manage it from the inside, which frankly isn't going to work. But that sort of, you know, we probably did things to not make that performer feel like they could trust us. I mean, we were 19 or 20. So, you know, but the other thing I would, I would add is that, um, you're going to encounter some personalities and I think it's important to develop the skill early to take care of them wherever they are or meet them wherever they are. And that's probably true of a whole crew and a whole production and whatever you do. But I think that one of the things that I learned the hard way was it's not a one size fits all with people and personalities and actors. They're all going to have different needs and you have to try and get everybody to feel comfortable and safe with what you're doing because all that power struggle came from people not feeling like they could trust us. 
All right. Well, that has been this week on the No Film School podcast. You will see us all next week. You can follow me on the Twitter, on the Instagram. You're going to hear me plugging this a lot, but I have a web series called Salty Pirate, which is about a couple friends starting a type design company. It is coming out this spring. It'll be on Ficto and Vimeo and Amazon uh, Prime. So that is coming out this spring, Salty Pirate. You can watch the trailer at saltypirate.tv and follow us at Salty Pirate, the series on Instagram for updates when it is coming out. And you are going to hear me plugging that for like ever now for like the next three months you're going to be hearing me plug that so get ready everybody salty pirate i'm george gentleman editor-in-chief at no film school uh we have a lot going on up on the website right now as always i feel like i'm always saying that and if you're tired of the plugs for the website you're listening to the wrong podcast but um but keep listening anyway because you know it's great and what do we have coming up um we have some cool tech stories coming up we have a story about Stabilize, the stabilizer Deacons used on 1917 that'll be coming out soon. We are going to do some stories on shooting on actual film. It's so cool. It's so special. It's not out of reach. It's not as out of reach and ridiculous as, as people think. Um, but, you know, keep checking out the website, uh, nofilmschool.com. Come to the podcast, rank us, like us, rate us, and comment. Let us know what you think. And please keep asking questions. These No Film School questions from the community are the best. We love them. And it's great talking directly about these kinds of things. So you can email us at ask at nofilmschool.com or editor at nofilmschool.com. Or you can write them on the forums and the boards as, as uh, someone did this week. Thanks. Thanks.